Wait, Leo, is that the set of Frasier on your Zoom background? <laughs> Every single person on this Zoom has a virtual background of an NBC must-see TV Thursday night lineup. I'm picking Frasier. Ain't nothing <laughs> wrong with that. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet employee Leah Leibowitz. I love that I'm demoted with every turn. I don't even <laughs> want to be an employee. I just want to be, you know, the guy who, who spins the sign outside on the sidewalk. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello. Today on the show, we're, we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. We're lurching toward the new year. Our Gentile of the Week is filmmaker Ken Burns, who joins us to talk about his new docu-series. And he's joined by his co-director and producer, Sarah Botstein. And our JOTW, our Jewish guest, is cookbook author Kim Kushner who shares some kosher food inspiration for the holiday. My my script says, shares some kosher food inspo for the holiday. <laughs> Is that a thing? Was was Quinn just abbreviating or do people say inspo for inspiration? People younger than 78 years old do say inspo. <laughs> she has, as they say, the receipts. <laughs> inspo. Elizabeth has not yet brought that one back from ninth grade, and she's my bellwether on these things. On the Insta, there's a lot of inspo. No doubt. Stephanie Butnick, enough about me. You just celebrated an anniversary, I believe? Yes, I did. Ben Cohen and I celebrated our five-year anniversary, which is crazy. Five years. That's a long time. Your wedding might have been the last night Sid and I got away by ourselves. It was a great night. Some six kids ago for you guys. <laughs> it was, that was, that was a, a party weekend. Did Ben get you anything for the, what is it, the paper anniversary, the wood anniversary? So the fifth anniversary is the wood anniversary. And he, like, Ben is the best and I'm the worst because Ben did get me presents. And I, of course, like, did not get him anything. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Setting the scene. Ben, <laughs> first of all, reminded you that was your anniversary as you're flying back from the Unorthodox Live show in Chicago. It's like, so are you coming back? And you're like, yeah, why? It's like He said, so when are you coming back the day after? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know when we booked flights for. And he's like, why are you being so clicky, Ben? <laughs> I was like, why do you want to know? And he says, because it's our anniversary. And I said, oh, yes. And so I'm, I am the worst. Um, so I did. I flew back in the morning and we, um, Ben's parents came in, babysat. We had a nice dinner out. And he gave me gifts. And I felt so horrible because I did not get him anything. But so the fifth anniversary is apparently the wood anniversary. So he got me like a pen that came in sort of like a wood case that said my initials, which was very sweet. And he also got me a moleskin. I don't think this is technically wood, but I guess paper from wood. But it's, it's a paper product. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. So it's a moleskin with my initials SB on them. And so a moleskin, it's, it's a notebook. And I was like, that's so sweet. And then he said, so you don't have to keep those post-its all over the apartment. Um, and you, you guys have worked with me. You know that I keep everything in my life on color-coded post-its. There's not necessarily any order to the color coding, but like big lined post-its and our apartment is covered with them. Like I, that's that, how hold I keep on. track. I, I, want, I want to parse that. Is that. That's a very sweet gift and Ben Cohen is absolutely the best. But is that a bit of a flex to be like, is that a bit like buying your wife like a vacuum cleaner? Be like, it is. here. It is. I know, because the apartment's like, he, I know you live your shit all over the place. Right. Here's a container to put I'm, all your things. The in. original president of the Ben Cohen fan club and his book, The Hot Hand, is one of my favorite books of the past five years. But it does violate the cardinal rule. Don't buy people gifts that suggest they need to improve themselves. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's funny because I am always on the hunt for the perfect pad of paper. Right. And like he knows, I'm always just like, no, this is the size that I'm going to check all the things off the to-do list on. And I, it never works, by the way. Nothing gets checked off that list. Right. Because, and you can tell BZ Co. and I said so, people never change. Like disorganized people, and you're an organized person, but I'm saying, Ooh. I'm just, I'm drawing an analogy here. 
if, you, if, the, if your thing is that you're disorganized, there is no gadget or device you can buy yourself that will make you organized. If you hate reading, getting yourself a Kindle won't make you love reading. If you hate exercising, buying this particular thing you saw on late night TV doesn't make you an exerciser. Nobody changes. Nobody changes. Wait, so my Bowflex isn't going to help? I'm sorry. I have a question. So, so this is Mark Oppenheimer, co-host of the world's leading Jewish podcast. Yeah. Speaking about, I don't know, a week and a half before the month of Tishrei. That's right. The, the high holidays, the days of awe begin. <laughs> right. Telling me that change impossible. is impossible. There is no impossible. tshuva. <laughs> there is no repentance. Forget about it. You're as bad or as good so, as you're ever going to be. Pretty much. You're welcome. You're a happy 5783. Correct. Uh, because it is the new year coming up soon, right? I love the Jewish new year. Can I just say this? Can I make this this exceptional hot take? I have no love for the Gregorian. Like, I do not need December 31st, January 1st. I don't I don't need that. How do they even know when December 31st is? You know, Aleph <laughs> Tishrei is the same time every year. How do they figure out but, December? But here's the thing. Like, actually, this is a thing that Judaism optimized. Yes. It's back to school. It's the seasons are changing. Fall. It's like the crisp. It's the pumpkin spice latte. It's my birthday. Like, I feel yep. like it's Virgo season for Jews. And I love this idea <laughs> that the new year starts now. Like, summer was a time to, you know, let go a little bit. You change things up and then you come back. You get your soul in line for the for the new year. Can I go all, all Hasidic here for a second? What is the first month of the Hebrew calendar? It's Nisan, uh, which begs the question, why don't we celebrate? the new year in the actual new year. Well, there are four new years, right? There's the new year of the trees and the new oh, year. Oh, there, there, there's a whole, there's a plethora, a smorgasbord, right. if you will. Uh, the most interesting Hasidic explanation I've heard is that if you celebrated the new year in Nisan with the exodus from Egypt, it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, here's what the new year is like. It's miracles. It's someone else doing the work for you. It's Moses. It's God. It's Sinai. It's Torah. We want to get to a point in which this is entirely on you. You've had time to prepare. You're standing here. Now the burden is yours. It's like three days after the party, all the high has come down. Oh, that's so and now interesting. now you actually start doing the work. I that's so it. autumnal. It's autumnal. Right? It is. Yeah. A it's exactly what it is. So look, Rosh Hashanah gets us thinking about many, many things. And I really like what you just said there, Liel, about it. It's sort of, it's sort of autumnal. The, the hubbub of the Seder is well in the past, right? And we're in our homes. We're having people over. We're making of it what we will, and we're doing it as Jews. And this seems the perfect opportunity to bring in our colleague, Tanya Singer, to help us revive one of the central questions of the podcast, which is Jewish or Goyish. And as longtime listeners know, right, we've talked, we've had mega debates about whether top sheets are Jewish or Goyish, whether aluminum foil or saran wrap is more Jewish, whether my favorite, is it more Jewish or Goyish to back into a parking space? But Tanya Singer, out of the blue recently, raised a new one of these and we all immediately said, oh my God, that's for the J Crew. We that's need for the theme podcast music audience. for this. Yeah. A concept we made up, by the way, Jewish and Goyish. No one has done that before. No one's like, done as that. as part of a bit. Correct. Like that's right. something all... totally original to us. <laughs> so creative. Lenny who? And this is a good time to do it because there are big meals at this time of year. There's, there, you might have a Rosh Hashanah dinner. You might have people for a Yom Kippur breakfast. You might be having people over. You might even include Gentiles in those plans, right? Perhaps you have Gentile family members. So this is a really good, this is a seasonal Jewish versus Goyish question. Tanya Singer, Director of Strategy and Partnerships. Welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you. You are you are at the home base in Scarsdale right now? I'm in uh, Tablet, Lower Westchester. 
tab just say it. Tablet Scarsdale. Tablet Scarsdale. <laughs> we have a we're building a we're building a force here. Yes. So would you do our listeners, the J. Crew, the honor of telling them this thing? All right, here's what it is. I was working in events in politics during the 2016 election. I worked for Bloomberg and I worked at a lot of events. And one night in particular, we got this like horde of people showed up after one of the convention speeches and our event people looked at each other and looked at me and said, family hold back. Family hold back. Family hold back. And I was like, I have no idea what you just said. What is that? Is that direction? What are you telling me to do? And of course, none of them were Jewish. And they were stunned that I had no idea, especially since we were hosting people. How could somebody hosting people for food not know what FHB or family holdback was? And so I forgot about it. And somehow, like, just thinking about holidays and, and all the prep, like, FHB popped into my head. And I, I called Stephanie Butnick and I was like, Stephanie, do you know what this is? So, yes, I said FHB family holdback. My very best friend, Irene Pappas, told me about this. And this is like if at a family event or, you know, a Christmas dinner or something like that. A christening. Yeah, a baptism, <laughs> a, a meal after. A, a new yacht, you know, any, any one of these things. There's not enough, say, like mashed potatoes. And so it'll be like FHB on the potatoes, guys. And so, like, you will know that if your family is hosting this event, if people are at your home for a meal, your family cannot go into the mashed potatoes. Or like, you know, there's there's not a lot of green beans. FHB on the green beans. It basically just means like, don't eat those things. Save those for the guests. I've never in my entire life heard a more goryish concept. First of all, the idea <laughs> that there will not be enough food. Right. I mean, there was still food in my fridge from like two Rosh Hashanahs. Like, I don't even know what to do with all this thing. 76 people could show up for three days and there will still be enough food. So obviously this thing exists. At least two families do it. This person Tanya used to work with and had to cut out of her life. And Irene. Well, that's why she works here now. Right. <laughs> I, feel, I feel really safe. All right. Kind of monster will not make enough green beans. And Stephanie's friend, Irene. So it, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist. I'm often accused of sort of universalizing my own experience. If I've never seen something, I say that doesn't exist. It's called podcasting, Mark. I will concede that out of out of the seven billion people on Earth or whatever, there are there are two families that have. There are some Gentiles, some who are not Jewish. FHB. But I should say that our colleague Courtney Hazlett, who has known many Gentiles in her life says that she doesn't think that any of them have ever said FHB or family homebike. I should also say, for what it's worth, that I have traveled amongst the Gentiles. I mean, remember, I did play Little League in, you know, in Springfield. As I've said, the Little League was organized by Catholic Parish. Nobody ever said FHB. I knew only Gentiles till the age of 20. Nobody ever said FHB. So I'm dubious that this, but it is an interesting thing that you met one in greater Bloomberg circles. You met one so, okay, this is definitely a thing. And what we need to find out from our listeners is, is this something that they have encountered only in Gentile homes? Or is this something that Jews do also? I think that we're just going to put it out there and, and see. I mean, I the best part about FHB is that it's whispered, right? <laughs> it's like, it's very quiet. It's like said under the radar, like FHB on the- I'm on totally the... picturing like a cartoon where on, there's Jews and Gentiles facing down each other across an, a table that's like under provisioned. And the Jews are whispering to each other, I think they're Jewish. Like who's <laughs> unsra and who's not? Who's one of ours? Like, is she Jewish? And the Gentiles are saying, family hold back. Don't eat all the food. Like that. The Jew, that's what Jews want to know. Who else is a Jew? The Gentiles want to know, What's the etiquette around the mashed potatoes? You know, it's so funny because the Jewish fear of like running out of food is both 
hyperbolic and also kind of real. On our episode last week, when Abby Pokerman was talking about the Minion, where she talked to non-Jewish spouses of Jews, one of them literally said, I had to learn how to order more. Like, it's both stereotypical, but it also is kind of true. And I mean, I'm an over-orderer. My grandfather, Walter Kirshner, of Ukrainian Jews, right? He literally went around, went into the kitchen every night after everyone had cleaned up. He recleaned because he thought my grandmother didn't clean well enough. And then he threw out all the leftovers. <gasps> he literally wanted a bare kitchen, a bare fridge every night before he could watch his Benny Hill and go to bed. And so the idea, he would come to our house where we sometimes saved leftovers because we were four kids, didn't have infinite funds or time. And you save leftovers, Right. He'd come to my mom's house, his daughter's house. Grandpa would come and throw out her leftovers and she'd be like, dad, I was going to feed the kids those tonight. And he'd be like, well, they, they didn't look like there was enough. You know, it wasn't enough for a tuna melt. Like Jews come in all shapes and sizes. That is a crime against humanity. In Tablet's book, The 100 Most Jewish Foods, one of the 100 entries is literally leftovers. Leftovers, I know. <laughs> like, I know. And the famous trilling quote, like, no one remembers the original meal from which all these leftovers emanate. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the overabundance. Look, I'm, I'm going to share this. We're having friends come over tonight. For We're recording this. It's Friday morning as we record. In a few hours, we're going to have Shabbos meal. It's just another family with, you know, two kids who we love dearly. It's a total no-fuss dinner. Here's what's going to be served to four small children and four adults. We have herring and cream. We have herring and schmaltz. We have herring and vinegar. Just a herring bar? Chopped liver. <laughs> this chopped is liver. making me anti-Semitic, We have <laughs> whitefish salad. We have smoked tuna. We have egg salad. We have hummus. We have trina. We have two kinds of pickles. We have orzo with feta and spinach. We have salmon. We have cake. We have cookies. We have wine. And we have vodka. <laughs> this is just an ordinary no-effort Shabbos meal. FHB? What the f- what the fabrengen? Tanya, you want it? You raised your hand. Go ahead, Tanya. I did a little digging. I found an etymologist named Barry Popick, which is like Pupik, I think. I'm going like, with Pupik. For sure. Is that our guy? Barry Pupik, I'm saying, has, hey. has a whole thing, a whole blog post about FHB. And there's mentions of shrimp, I'm just saying. And he also talks, this has shown up in print. FHB, Family Holdback, has been in print since the 1800s. It's It's been an American print for a very long time. And then I did a little looking on Twitter and found Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Former guest of Unorthodox. She had an amazing Jewish take. She, does, she doesn't realize I'm going to take it as a Jewish take, but she has initial capped Jewish food panic. JFP. I think JFP is us. FHB is team Gentile. As Jews say, 100%. I need to cut in to, to add a thing based yes, off of that. Yes, producer Josh Cross. Do not First hold all, back. Family, do not hold back. <laughs> this is not right. Not a producer hold back. Although, by the way, I'm sorry. Just if I, I'm, I'm interjecting here. The whole point of holding back, like <laughs> the words don't even make sense to Being us. Being asked politely to <laughs> hold back you under your breath. back on anything. <laughs> producer we can't Josh. even have a conversation about FHB without interrupting each other. First of all, let me point out that at almost any family event that I had been at, and this definitely would happen at my own dinner table, if you tried to pull that stuff, the mashed potatoes would be gone in about four seconds because they, like whoever wanted them would be like, well, I'm not going to be the first one to give them up. Second of all, when you see people being worried about running out of food, you know what happens? They just put out less. My aunt would put out a single can of tuna fish to tide people over because she didn't want people to eat all her food in advance. And that that seems far more like the food panic thing where I'm like, I'm just not going to put it out so they can't have it. You're not going to put it out there and expect people not to eat it. 
I remember when like my parents were up to three or four children and they realized that one large Domino's pizza wasn't enough, but they didn't want to go large and small because that could be wasteful. And then we might have leftovers. And so there were years when I think we were getting one large Domino's pizza for a family of six. That's 12 slices, by the way. And we were like three growing boys and a much younger sister. I would love to move into the world where there's just this abundance of food, but you know, they're only, it's a, it's a 12 inch pizza. There's 12 inch and eight inch and they didn't even make a 10 inch in the middle. Could you go two eight inches and then get to 16? You could, but they they, they didn't have deals back then. I mean, back yeah. then that would have been prohibitively expensive. Now they're like two. It for- was before they invented deals. Okay. My favorite thing that I do often hear, and look, abundance is a privilege. It's amazing. I'm like, I'm so aware of all you of that. You have so much privilege. My favorite thing is when you hear, now, don't fill up on the appetizers because there's like a lot of dinner coming. Like that's, I feel like what we hear. I want also to say, I don't see abundance as privilege. I actually see abundance as something much closer to a disorder. I to think a burden? This. Yes, I, I, I think we do this because we, we have some kind of, you know, vestigial primordial uh, thing that tells us there may not be this again. Live here, live today, be in this moment. I think it's a deeply Jewish thing. I think it's a deeply beautiful thing. And I think, you know, as as much as it could sound loopy or or sort of extravagant, I think it's a it's a feature, not a flaw. By the way, not to take this back to the Holocaust, which I will. I mean, it's been like 45 minutes on this episode so far and I haven't. That's where this comes from in my family. Like my grandparents threw enormous parties for any event, right? Like my baby party was like a black tie affair. <laughs> like it was like, it was just, we could, we should celebrate and we should. And so it's like, there's a compulsion of abundance, but there's also like, let's celebrate everything. And I feel like that's maybe a good thing. Like maybe I want to take that into this, this new year, this idea of like, let's celebrate all of this. I don't want as much herring as your celebrations, Leo. No one does. Family herring. Hold back. Something with a B. Right. Family <laughs> herring banishment, FHB. One of my favorite Talmudic, because I've been told by a listener that I should not say Yudic because Talmudic is Goyish and Talmudic Disagree. is Jewish. I agree. Yeah, you know, all those all those wasps who are saying Talmudic, <laughs> they're saying it wrong. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go with this. One of my favorite stories, you know, this is Hillel and Shammai, the famous pair. One of them, you know, is a sort of strict kind of censorious gentleman. The other is much more permissive. So Shammai would go the entire week uh, kind of very carefully cultivating the perfect meal for, for Shabbat. He would like, look at the perfect cow. And if you found a better cow, I'd be like, nope, that's a better cow. We'll slaughter this one for Shabbat. He was like really into making Shabbat as perfect as he could. And Hillel was like, I'm going to eat the best thing every day because every day is a celebration. Every day is holy. Every moment here is wonderful. That's kind of my attitude. And if you have that attitude, then go ahead, add that third or fourth or fifth herring to the table if you could afford it, because what's the point? Tomorrow may not be. Listeners, if you have thoughts on family holdback or abundance, in the new year, please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Do not hold back. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Let's see if we can get through this one in less than two hours. We bumped it from last week because it deserved a full slot of its own. Yeshiva University battling to withhold formal recognition for its LGBTQ plus pride group. 
Basically, there's an organization of undergraduates at Yeshiva College, the, the Undergraduate College of Yeshiva University, that is suing for formal recognition from the university, the right to use email lists, the right to reserve campus spaces, that sort of stuff. To sum up, and this case has been bandied back and forth, and it's quite complicated, but for now, the Supreme Court has said that Yeshiva University must comply with a state court's order that it should recognize its campus gay rights organization. And they kicked it back to the state courts, which could now actually give Yeshiva University a stay and not make it comply with that order. And so this is going to be litigated more and more. But basically, the question at hand is, should Yeshiva University be permitted to not recognize its campus gay rights organization, which most universities would have to because of civil rights law, especially if you take government money, which brings the scrutiny of state and federal civil rights law in terms of discriminating against LGBTQ people. Leah Leibowitz, you have yet to write about this case for Tablet. I'm shocked, but no doubt you will. What are your thoughts on this? Leah Leibowitz, you have yet to lose the love, affection, and tolerance of the three listeners of Unorthodox who still uh, like you. Look, this is, this is a really intricate question uh, and one that I feel is worthy of deep and, and nuanced answer. I'll, I'll do my best to be brief here. Um, I personally feel very, very strongly uh, and have spent a lot of time, effort, and personal resources campaigning for civil unions for uh, LGBTQ Americans because I think that it is absolutely unconscionable, immoral, and intolerable to treat any individual in a way that is any lesser than any other one of, of his or her peers based solely on something like sexual orientation, which is as much out of our control as is our height or the color of our skin or the color of our hair. At the same time, I'm also an observant Jew uh, who is not at liberty to overrule, override, or ignore any of the rules of the Torah. And that leaves me in a very, very difficult situation, which is the exact same situation in which Yeshiva University is in. Uh, I will also note that I currently teach at Yeshiva University. It's an institution that I, I know well and love dearly. I think it's the Hogwarts of the Jewish people. And I also know its president, Rabbi Ari Berman, and believe him completely when he says that Yeshiva University both welcomes and loves its gay, lesbian, bi, queer students as individuals, and that it does anything and everything in its power to make sure that they feel uh, loved and welcomed in this community. However, having an official club in a religious Torah-bound institution that is devoted and dedicated to values that are explicitly prohibited by the Torah is simply something that cannot be permitted. Uh, I think Yeshiva University is 100% correct in its objection. It is standing up to tradition. And furthermore, it's also standing up to its religious rights to teach values and virtues according to its understanding. Yes, you could say that that then has issues with uh, public funding, but I think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, uh, and focus on the bigger issue. And I want to read briefly from, from Alito's argument yesterday as he writes, the free exercise clause protects the ability of religious schools to educate in accordance with their faith. Now, the bigger picture here really, and this is what I would love to focus on because there are so many intricacies here that I don't want to focus on. The best answer to this conundrum comes from a great Rebbe, our friend Father James Martin, who wrote a book about LGBTQ Catholics and the church. And he basically said that the relationship has to be a bridge, which by definition is a two-sided device, right? Or a two-sided pathway. 
on the one hand, the religious institution has to do everything in its power to make sure that individuals wishing to live according to the precepts of the faith are not discriminated against as individuals in any way, sense, or form. On the other, I think the LGBTQ individuals coming into the, these institutions and wishing to live in these institutions must not then turn around and demand that cardinal principles of dogma be subverted to accommodate them. This mustn't turn into a power struggle. Religious freedom isn't saying, I command you to do what I believe. Like the famous case with the cake and the lawsuit against the bakers. It isn't, hey, you must make a cake for me. It's how can we find a way together, not as a power struggle, not as a kind of virtue signaling contest, but as a real act of community building and love and sharing to make sure that we uphold our traditions while at the same time making sure that all individuals feel safe and welcome. I actually think that in practice, Yeshiva University is doing a wonderful job at it. Modern Orthodoxy was created for the purpose of both hewing to Torah values and halacha or Jewish law and also being part of the modern world. This is the latest in a series of difficult conversations that this movement has had to have about how to be a Torah observant person in a changing modern world and how to sort of engage with that wider world. I'm, I'm curious to see how this case shakes out, but I think it must be really hard to be a queer student at yeshiva and feel like you're accepted in some ways, but not others, like with this club. Look, by the way, th there has been a, a precedence for this, which I think is just as you know meaningful and, and resonant. About, I think, seven or eight years ago, uh, a very large group of Orthodox rabbis, mainly from Israel, but here too, basically issued a statement and a ruling on LGBTQ Jews and communities. And, and it says precisely this. It says, look, as Torah observant Jews, there are things that we absolutely may not subvert because if we start doing this, if we start saying, oh, well, you know, our modern sensibilities now decree that X is no longer correct and Y is irrelevant, like pretty soon we're not going to have any tradition. There's a reason we survived for as long as we did. It's because we had faith for the Messorah, right? For the, for the laws that were passed to us from generation to generation. However, says the same statement, it's the gravest sin imaginable to discriminate against any individual in any way in our communities. Is their life more difficult because they're gay Jews? Again, something that they did not choose in a community that has this great big stumbling block? Sure, yes, absolutely it is. It, it inherently is so. Is it the community's job to then make their lives you know, as welcoming as is possible by making sure that they are as loved, as accepted, as sort of revered in their institutions as is possible? Yes. Can the institution officially sanction any of this activity? No, it can't. These are gay students who are still attending YU. I mean, it's sort of like an important detail, I feel like, here, the fact that there are gay students who want to be part of YU. I mean, these aren't people who are like, there's no room for me in modern orthodoxy, in orthodoxy. I mean, I think that that is worth remembering in all of this, that there are people who are sort of trying to find that space for themselves there and do feel comfortable there. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, in some ways, this is actually the same question that we dealt with last week with the Hasidic schools that don't offer English, which is on the one level, and I admire the way you two are talking about it as, as a question. You're both looking at the big questions, right? About change versus tradition, about acceptance versus exclusion. At the same time, you know, what horrified a lot of people about the Hasidic schools teaching English so badly was not that they were teaching English so badly, but that they were doing it while collecting enormous amounts of public money and evading scrutiny. And if you care about that, if you think that matters, right, if you think that skirting the laws 
uh, which clearly to some extent, it seems based on the reporting, the laws are being skirted, even if the money is gotten through proper channels. If that matters to you, if that kind of corruption actually matters to you, then you have to have enormous gratitude toward the reporters who dug it up, right? Because I didn't dig it up. They did. And I don't have the resources or the time or the inclination to go dig it up. They did. So you can't, you know, it's like you can't hate the police if you want some police protection. You can't scorn the people who are doing the work that you don't have the time to do, but that you secretly want to be done. If you think you need somebody to be a soldier or a cop or an investigative reporter, you have to be grateful when they go do it. Interestingly, this YU case, while it definitely touches on all this big stuff, if you read the case, and I went and read all the briefs, also has to do with the fact that YU has tried to have it both ways for a long time. Their graduate schools, for example, have LGBTQ clubs. Cardozo Law School does. I think the social work school does. And what's more, the university itself has argued that it is not primarily a religious institution, but an educational institution when they have been seeking government funds or permits. And I don't, I forget the specific details, but everyone can go read it online. So the reason that they lost at one level, actually, and that judge, by the way, that, that she misunderstood tremendous amounts about Judaism. She seemed to think like, well, this school, it's, it's offering bachelor's degrees. How could it be a church? I mean, she, it, she, imposed this totally Gentile Christian vision of what school is that didn't make room for the fact that, is true. that YU is absolutely an educational institution and therefore a sacred space. She got it completely wrong in a way that was deeply offensive. At the same time, she pointed out, and this is going to be very tough for YU to get out from under, that at various points they have said, oh, we're not a religious institution. We want to be viewed under the law having to do with educational institutions because we want this particular government grant or permit or whatever. They have not chosen to do, as the Hasidic yeshivas in Brooklyn have not chosen to say, we abjure and reject government money because we don't want the oversight. Rather, they've had their hands out at various points when they want the money. And now that the government is saying, well, it apparently you want government entanglement, they're saying, no, 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 freedom of religion. And therefore, we have to call them on that and say, you cannot have it both ways. Mark, I, I hear your points completely. I, I I truly do. And, and I don't think, while it's not the central point in in my emotional, spiritual worldview, intellectual worldview, I, I don't wish to diminish it and say that it's just a technicality. It's much more than that. I, however, wish to point anyone curious about this specific point to the great Nat Lewin, the great you know First Amendment lawyer who wrote today in Newsweek about this case, making the argument, A, that this, even if you take, you know, Yeshiva University to be a strictly educational institution and not a religious institution, he's saying this case is actually really, really, really important for all private universities because while private universities tend to take some form of public funding for this project or another, private universities still have the right to reject uh, certain clubs, certain candidates, certain ideas, certain faculty members based on, you know, ideological mismatch, based on people or ideas that don't fit into the university's worldview. And that right has to be absolutely preserved. Government money doesn't mean that the government could then come and say, hey, now we get to tell your institution what it believes and what it doesn't get to believe. I think that's an important point also. The other thing about both of these stories is that they're sort of on different ends of the spectrum of orthodoxy, right? Like on the one hand, last week, we talked about these really, really insular, isolated communities. And here we have YU, whose whole thing is like, we're both. We're Torah observant, but also a modern university. We're with you in the world. And yeah, Mark, I think that thing about like having it both ways, I think is what's like gnawing at me here, which is like, can you, you can't really have it both ways. Like you can't be like, oh, 
yes, we're modern and welcoming, not to this club, it doesn't work. It doesn't really make sense to me how you can sort of get away with doing that. And I think that there's a reason. I don't know this one off. I haven't done the reporting, so I say this with some hesitancy. There's a reason that they allow the gay club at Cardozo Law School because you can't be a serious law school unless you're basically going to get be a more secular space and, and have lots of Gentile students. And so they're taking this stand at the undergraduate college, but they've decided to put the fences around the undergraduate college, even though it's all one big institution with one big tax number. And so I think that they may, if they lose, it'll probably be on some of this. I always forget that Cardozo is part of YU. I know a lot of people who went to Cardo's it's a great law school in New York. And I kind of forget that it's part of YU. And so I actually am curious. I'm going to ask my friends who went there. Like, I bet it's as Jewish as Georgetown Law School is Catholic. Please, Jesuit. Je- Jesuit. I mean, then the question is, will the Jewish world step up and fund them if they lose this money here or there? And that's a big question. And I don't know the answer because modern Orthodox parents, actually, most of them want their kids at Harvard, not at YU. If YU actually can't replace whatever government money it gets, it'll be because the modern Orthodox world is actually very conflicted about whether it wants this level of observance versus, or does it want status? Liel, we have a really important NOTJ story after this, so take us home quickly. I just want to say, let's not turn this into yet another battlefield in which we uh, advocate for absolute values and absolute victories. Let's remember that if we love each other and wish to be together as a community, we work things out with with love and open-heartedness and respect for real differences, even or particularly when these differences are are vast and true and unfathomable to our way of life. As my friend Derek would say, bouge bouge. That's his sound for hugging it out. I want to take us all, J. Crew, to the more important story in News of the Jews this week. I'm going to go there very quickly because we spent a lot of time on family holdback <laughs> and queer life at YU. And so we now have to get to the really serious stuff. According to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, there was an unusual advertisement circulating in an Orthodox Jewish WhatsApp group last Sunday. It was appealing to Orthodox women who want to look great but conform to tznias, modesty. Yes, they were being offered by this advertisement high-quality and durable silicon toes that buyers can slip over their stockings, allowing them to wear sandals and look like they are showing off their toes and their manicures while actually covering their toes. Leah Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick... If you were a Haredi woman, would you wear silicone toes? Is that the question at hand here? Is that the way into this story? Let me jump in here. I have never loved any idea more. The advertisement says, do you want to look stylish, but would never, God forbid, wear open-toed shoes? What about if you want to wear open-toed shoes, but like haven't gotten a pedicure in a long time? Like, I love this idea that we can just put fake toes over our toes. All of us. Like, I don't want this to be just for Orthodox women. Complete genius. Also, I would like men to do this also, particularly oh those who wear open-toed sandals yeah. on the subway. They should be they should be required. 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 Speaking of like the seasons changing, I'm very excited for fall when I stop seeing men's gross toes on the subway. I don't want to see them. Amen to that, sister. I've said this on your Take One Talmud podcast, Liel. I am on the record. <laughs> we have never agreed more vehemently on anything than we do on this one. J. Crew, please call us and weigh in on these weighty subjects as we close out 5782. <laughs> and I would say that the favorite religious text of whoever came up with this new fangled invention is Tosfos. That is a joke for eight people. And you're Tosifus. welcome. That was a deep cut. Tosifus. Oh, that was a small, that was a small audience joke. 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Don't be shy with your opinions.
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. This week, it's coming on Rosh Hashanah, so we have a super-powered Jew and Gentile combo. One of them is filmmaker Sarah Botstein. The other is some guy, Ken Burns. I don't know. Maybe you've heard of him. They join us to talk about their amazing new series, The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's a three-part series on PBS that explores a really interesting angle. This is all about America's response to the biggest humanitarian crisis in history. Here are Sarah Botstein and Ken Burns. Ken and Sarah, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for having us. Really glad to be here. So tell us about the U.S. and the Holocaust, this new film that is airing on PBS and how it came to be. There are sort of two ways that we came to make this film. The first is that in 2007, Ken and Lynn and Jeff Ward, the incredible writer, and I worked on a project on the American experience of the Second World War. And after that, in 2014, Jeff Ward and Ken made a beautiful film on the Roosevelt's, Theodore, Eleanor, and Franklin. And in 2015, while we were in the midst of making our epic series on the Vietnam War, came to our attention that the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was working on an exhibition called Americans and the Holocaust. And they approached us and said, do you think this would make a good documentary and would you guys be interested in doing it? And for similar and different reasons, I think Lynn and Ken and Jeff and I all jumped at the chance to try to tackle this subject and put it into a schedule that was already locked and didn't really have room for it and set about to explore a topic that I think many of us think we know a lot about and have seen a lot of films that tackle and read a lot of books that think about it. And in the course of making the film, all of us learned a lot. And I think the film has a lot to say today. And so when you jump in, into something like this, I, I, I want to pick on this point because I found it very inspirational before I even started watching and, and more and more so as I went along because here you are jumping into a very kind of crowded pool, so to speak. You're entering a topic which is so prominent uh, in our consciousness, which has been covered so often by so many people. Does there ever come a time in which you say, I, I don't know about this one? No, not in this case. In fact, what, what really motivated is the experience of, of treating partially the Holocaust in the, in the war film 
and the Second World War film and in the Roosevelt's, we people came out of the woodwork with all sorts of kind of crazy questions, misinformation and disinformation about it and conspiracy theories. And we really felt that Americans had had sort of divorced themselves from the reality of the Holocaust. It felt that they didn't know about it leading up to it and sort of had a kind of plausible deniability about it. And so we set out to do the U.S. and the Holocaust to find out what we knew, when we knew it. From the very beginning, we knew everything that was going on and what we did and what we more importantly what we didn't do and what we should have done and in the course of having to set the table with that you had to go back into our long history about immigration about pre-existing anti-semitism throughout the united states and the world about our treatment of native peoples the dispossession of their land which hitler admired and thought it it contributed to our great virility to deal with racism in the united states and nativist anti-immigrant sentiment uh, to understand what the pseudoscience of eugenics was suggesting in the hierarchy of races or ethnicities or countries that helped sponsor the johnson reed act and made those quotas systems in place after decades and decades of letting just about anybody into the United States, which freaked out a kind of Protestant majority. And they had the fear that they were being replaced. And and the eugenics inspired the Johnson-Reed Act that permitted fairly large quotas for those Northern European Nordic peoples, Aryans, uh, Hitler would say, and very minuscule uh, quotas for those people from countries in, that were Catholic and Slavic and, and Jewish. And that combined with the depression created this unbelievable inability of the United States to respond. Now, having said that, we're not in any way responsible or complicit with the Holocaust. Uh, many people in the United States shared the same views as the National Socialists in Germany, but we actually took in more refugees, 225,000 people than any other sovereign nation, but we could have taken in five or 10 times that amount. And I still think I would have given us a failing grade for what we did not do because of the prevalence of this anti-Semitism. Germans, uh, jurists studied our Jim Crow laws to fashion the first anti-discriminatory laws against the Jews in in, in uh, Nuremberg in the very early 30s, uh, just after the National Socialists had come to power. And so this is a complicated story. And then in so telling our story, we realized we had to re-see and re-understand and reconfigure and re-describe the actual Holocaust, which exposed us to the most recent scholarship and to understandings that we certainly did not have, say, for example, among thousands of examples, just the extent of the Holocaust or the Shoah by bullets in which more than 2 million Jews were just summarily executed and dropped into pits in Nazi-occupied Poland, and then later in Lithuania and Latvia and Ukraine and Belarus and, and, and Russia. So we were trying to tell that whole story and and be faithful to it. There was never a moment, and I, it's a point of, of, of extreme pride that once we say yes to a project, Sarah knows this, I will never look at another Holocaust film until we're done. And in fact, I just recently saw one because the film was done, done, and we weren't uh, changing it. So, so you, you figured you'd relax with Schindler's List? Yeah. Unwind. Wait, what? what, what was it? Well, I've actually seen Schindler's List because Steven Spielberg had seen an early iteration, or not an early iteration, the final thing, and and just said he thought it was the best film on the Holocaust, in his humble opinion. And I felt 
having been in the presence of someone who th- made what I think one of the great, uh, uh, you know, fiction films, but one of the great films about the Holocaust that I owed it to him uh, to go back and look at his masterwork. So let me ask you this. You know, I, I, I sat down to watch this film kind of thinking, and I'm, I'm a very, very, very big fan of, of your work, and you know, thinking I'm going to sit down and, and watch yet another great, big, illuminating piece of, you know, history, the past preserved in number, et cetera. And and about 25 minutes into it, I got this very unsettling feeling, not because I was watching a very, you know, well-made Holocaust documentary, because it felt to me like if I didn't know better, I could be forgiven for mistaking that I was watching a movie about America now. You know, the discussions about science, the, the vehement anti-Semitism and racism, discussions about immigration. It felt really shockingly Contemporary, as you were working on this movie, was there a moment that you looked and said, oh, oh my Lord, all these forces that that kept us from reacting the way we should have to the Holocaust, they're all still alive and well? Yes, yes. And that's true of every film we work on, but no more so in this one, which is why we accelerated the production uh, and it can't have it come out this year. And because of the way we dismount the film, just as we mount it with the, the description of, of the conditions that led up in America to our stance with regard to immigrants and particularly Jewish refugees, that we felt compelled uh, to, to have a dismount that took into the fact that nearly every sentence of this film is rhyming with today in ways that are, that are terrifying. Because we made this film over the course of seven years, some of the things that you might feel in that first show, and I think through the whole series, became more terrifyingly real and rhyming as we were making the film. So in 2015, I think both here and around the world, things felt very different than they did in 2017, 2018, last year now, every day we wake up in the paper. So I think some of the themes of the first show that look at the tension here about whether or not we are a land of refuge and we have open borders and we are a country that is stronger and better for our diversity than a nation that wants something else and leans into a xenophobic, nativist, white supremacist history. And so the film did take on an urgency among us making it, and I think our editors included, but we didn't expect that when we set out to make the film. You know, something that was really interesting to me was, you know, in the late 30s, this idea of the bureaucratic red tape that you had to deal with. It wasn't just like the gates are closed. It was that it was actually so hard to get here. You needed a reference. You needed to show you were in good financial standing then no one was applying. And then the State Department could say, wait, there's no refugee crisis. No one's applying. Could you explain a little bit about that for people who haven't yet watched this? And then also sort of what you take from that, that almost dishonesty that we saw there? Dorothy Thompson has a very important quote where she says, the difference between life and death can be a piece of paper. And I think at this period in history, that is very, very true and very, very terrifying. And those of us in 2022 trying to make sure we have the right passport or the right license and have to deal with paperwork all the time can appreciate exactly what you're saying. It was very, very hard to get here. Even if you had every letter and every sponsor and could check every box, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy. And for me, the thing we could have done then and we could do now is to make it easier to get here. If you are, I mean, we had rules about immigrants. We didn't even know how to manage refugees. And then instead of making it easier, we made it harder. And I would say that, you know, that 
the State Department had a number of out-and-out anti-Semites, and particularly an undersecretary of state, Breckenridge Long, who slow-walked everything, who kept changing the rules, who would raise the bar or you know move the goalposts, and it made it hard. It's one of the reasons why we start our film with a very, very familiar for Americans Holocaust trope, which is Anne Frank, but it's not about Anne Frank it yet. It will be as we develop and intertwine her family's story. It's about her father and his efforts to get them to the United States. They leave Germany, they go to Amsterdam, they're comfortable. And like Sarah said, he has the means, he has the connections. He knows people who are rich in New York City that own Macy's. He knows people that are connected to the Roosevelt administration. He can't get in. And so, you know, we don't like the counterfactual stuff, but, you know, you got to think what would happen if the State Department said, sure, you're exactly the type of person to fill our quotas, you know, a, a businessman and successful and, and, and has all the right context. It's not going to be a burden to the state and, and take meal from somebody else. Would Anne Frank be alive? Where her children have discovered a cure for a disease or written a symphony. This is like... For every one of the six million, this is the unanswered question. What did we lose? And and I think just the sheer opacity of the word six million is the impediment for people to really engage it. So our charge to ourselves from the very beginning was to detail a kind of bottom-up thing so that you could not just say and describe the bureaucracy, Stephanie, that you're saying, but you are experiencing it through the personal bottom-up stories of many people. And sometimes it's not even getting to the moment where you can actually interact with a bureaucracy. It's knowing that they're going to kill you and the dignity of someone writing a letter to a friend, knowing he's going to his death and saying, I just want the world to know that someone named David Berger existed. And that you know, Yad Vashem used to have that on their website. That was that, this is what it is. How do you personalize this? And and the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says in our film, the particulars, he took six of those 6 million, his great uncle, Shmuel Yeager, his wife and their four daughters, and talks about the particularities of who they were and what they did and where they lived and then how they all died. And only one of them died in a gas chamber. And that brings you and opens you into the show of my bullets and other ways in which this tragedy unfolded. And so we're hoping to begin to sort of counteract the kind of conventional wisdom that Americans have. First, that we didn't know, not true. Second, that we are the great nation that welcomes immigrants. In this case, not so much. And that it was everybody died in a gas chamber in a concentration camp. Gas chambers were in killing centers, not concentration camps, in Nazi-occupied Poland, the most famous of which is, is Auschwitz. But of course, there's Treblinka and Belzic and Sobibor and Chelmno. I mean, you've got, we, we could make distinctions. And it is interesting as we're touring the country, releasing the film, how many people who thought they knew this story, who were interested in it, studied it, have, have, would shake their heads and said, I had no idea. Was there one thing in particular that you learned that sort of really stunned you that you said, like, this is such a major part of my new understanding of this topic that I just can't believe I didn't know? You know, it's a blizzard of things we didn't know. We don't make films about what we know about and to tell you what you should know. We we share with you a process of discovery. So these seven years have been 
an intense labor of love. They've been heartbreaking and they've been, as I'm beginning to realize, as I'm spending more and more days talking about it, it really opened my heart in a different way too. And so sometimes, Liel, they come in a... Um, a tiny little fact, you know, Edgar Maurer, the Chicago journalist who's writing in 1933 about how bad it is and how bad it's going to be, gets kicked out of Germany. And his German host says, when are you coming back? And he says, you know, with 2 million of my fellow countrymen, he knows then, he knows then what's going to happen. Or the people that Varian Fry and Hiram Bingham save that include Hannah Arendt and Wanda Landowska and Max Ophels and uh, Marcel Duchamp and Marc Chagall, and then ordinary people, right? So-called ordinary people. There aren't any ordinary people. They all represent a kind of full human life that this guy, a writer named Varian Fry and, and a willing consulate official in Southern France, committing, as Fry said, the crime of saving human lives, gets them out. And, and so, and it's the particulars of what I've just described as well about the Shoah by bullets, about the distinction between the killing centers of how to understand what a concentration camp is versus a killing center, how to understand, you know, the pack with the Soviets and then the reneging of the pack on the Soviets, how to understand the ways in which, you know, German jurists studied our Jim Crow laws to figure out how to discriminate against Jews. All of that stuff becomes just this tsunami of information you digest. And not one thing is it. It's the whole cumulative experience and process of working with my dedicated colleagues. And it's really a very small group of a couple of dozen, two and a half dozen people who have made this, handmade it over the last years and meticulously researched working every single day with scholars, not just every few months, but every single day with scholars to get it right and to get the most accurate figures we can find and to, and the most recent understanding of, of, of scholarship. I've said this a lot, but I, I'm going to repeat it, that for me, when we started the project and we were looking at the polling at different times in the conflict, the fact that if you just strip away all the mythology and all the ways that our collective understanding of this history, I think is very complicated and, and not clear eyed that in 1945, once all the evidence had been everywhere, there were newsreels, the March of time, it was in every publication. The world was trying to come to grips with what had just happened. And all the evidence was irrefutable. Americans didn't want to let the refugees in then either. That was something that we learned very, very early on in the project and gave it an urgency, I think, for all of us um, to try to understand why. We mentioned Spielberg before, you know, famously, he was in such a mindset of working for so long, so intensely on Chinda's List that after he would wrap shooting and editing, he would call Robin Williams to kind of just entertain him and get him out of the sort of, you know, existential dread of being in this mindset. Now, you have spent seven years in this environment, I wonder what it does uh, to, to your psyches and, and if there was something that you needed to feel or do or say in the middle of it to just uh, un, 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 unburden yourself of, of this tremendous weight. Well, I'll go first just quickly because I have a four-year-old and an 11-year-old. So um, going home to them and we actually made a fair amount of this film during COVID. So we were home with our loved ones in ways that were very peculiar and unusual. And the world was going through such a trauma itself that that was very interesting piece, I think, 
for all of us, right, kind of making this film while the world is going through yet a totally different kind of collective trauma. And also, you know, it might be hard to make a film about this, but it's a privilege to make a film about this. And the people who had endured it and lived through it and the first person witnesses and survivors, I never once felt like it was hard for me. It was really a privilege to make the film and the incredible spirit that they have, that people then had, that people continue to have to just persevere and push forward and reinvent and do justice to the memories of all the people who had died. Really, honestly, I, I mean it sincerely felt like a privilege. It didn't feel hard. I mean, it's hard in the, all the ways that things should be hard. I, I agree with Sarah completely. I think that there was, you know, we have a process. This is the same process as every film that we've done, but the material is just so hard. And, you know, we've got six and a half hours, but we also have 30 or 40 times that material. And some of that material is much worse than what we shared in the film. And we had to live through it. Our editors had to sift through it and understand it. That that's it takes a toll. But I think, you know, we were sustained by the 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 the, the sort of the fact that we were in this together and suffering through it. And we were so dedicated to trying to get it right. Uh, in in important ways with regard to scholarship, but also in the calibration of what footage you can show and how you show it and what you do to it and what survivor you do and what stories you can tell and what what just because of the art of storytelling have to be left out as good as as they are. All, all of that felt like a great gift. And and as I said, it it just felt heartwarming. I think I'm changed. Something about working on this film uh, changed me. But you know, I think being able to come home and hug your family and, and you know, realize it's a film. And, and what Sarah said is that we weren't rounded up at the end of the day and taken away and killed. We have still the gift of, of life that so many people don't. And this film is an attempt to honor the missing. It's like an amputated limb that still aches. Well, my question is actually not substantial at all, um, and it's a hard, hard, that's a hard act to follow. But, you know, something I did not know is that people called the New Deal the Jew Deal and that people thought that Roosevelt's real name was Rosenfeld. And I feel like in this very heavy film, I sort of just like I laughed a little bit about this idea that like Roosevelt was like secretly Jewish and he was Rose Rosenfeld. Um Am I wrong to like take that as a moment of levity or like, what did you think about that? Well, you know, I didn't see it as humorous. You're totally allowed to do that, Stephanie. That's, That's how my family way. deals with our intergenerational trauma via the yeah, Holocaust. Well, I think, you, know, so. you bring up an important point because FDR is often a lightning rod and people can paint him with a very broad brush. And, and sometimes he's blamed for the lack of American response. And, and there are places where the film is, is tough on him, but he's got other exigencies and other things that he's doing. And he's trying to bring his country out of its isolationist posture. He knows the anti-Semitic tenor of the country. So, you know, you just take it on a case-by-case, moment-by-moment basis, what's going on. And he's not the Fuhrer. He's not the king. He can't wave a magic wand and change things. And so I think something that speaks volumes in a terrifying way is that German propaganda, as well as American anti-Semitic propaganda, always suggested that Roosevelt was in the hands of the Jews. 
Uh, you know, he had appointed more Jews than any other president before him. And his secretary of treasury, one of the highest ranking cabinet members was Henry Morgenthau, his neighbor, upstate neighbor and a Jew. And uh, his wife is, you know, beyond sympathetic to every right issue on in the history of the world and um, and is whispering in his ear or shouting at him about it that his enemies would call his signature economic recovery program the Jew deal, that they would call him Frank D. Rosenfeld, that the graphics that we collected, you know, show him as constantly a, a pawn of Israel, has to in some way mitigate those who feel, including many Jews, that somehow Franklin Roosevelt had let them down. I think it's possible to say that, but only if we include the rest of the government and ourselves in that condemnation. And it's really not a condemnation. It's just the facts, you know, like a baseball game where umpires were calling balls and strikes. This is who we are. Are we a nation of immigrants? Are we exceptional? Yes, and I think so. Was this an exceptional moment or an example of that exceptionalism? No, it was not. Hallelujah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Immense love. Yes, thanks to you both for being on Unorthodox. I think our listeners, I know our listeners will love this film. It's The U.S. and the Holocaust. It premieres uh, September 18th on PBS. And we are grateful to you, Sarah Botstein, and you, Ken Burns, for, for talking about it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Our Jewish guest this week is Kim Kushner, a cookbook author who joins us to talk about kosher cooking and her latest book, The Modern Table. Kim Kushner, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. So I want to tell you, I want to confess something, the reason for our interview. Um, I've obviously been aware of your work and a fan of yours for quite some time, You've just come out with your fourth book, The Modern Table. But the impetus behind this, this, you know, call to you to sort of come on our show came in a form of a letter from a listener. And a listener wrote in and they said, you guys are always talking about food. You're always talking about Jewish food, but it's so rarely kosher. And there's sort of a barrier for those of us who listen and who keep kosher and who want to go to these cool new Jewish restaurants you're talking about, but none of them are kosher. So so our team talked about it, and I said, you know, actually, the person to bring on to talk about not just kosher food, but sort of what's been going on here is Kim Kushner, who has been sort of working against all of these perceptions of kosher food and all of this. So I guess that's my long way of saying welcome to the show. You have a lot of work to do in educating us and all of us. So what do you like? Is that annoying to hear that that's sort of why we turn to you? No, I love it. It's interesting because, yes, I keep kosher. Like, I know I, the kosher police can come out and, like, start attacking. So I keep kosher in my way of keeping kosher. But, yes, there is a really fine line between kosher food and Jewish food and kosher cooking and Jewish-style food. And sometimes those lines get blurred and people wonder about it. And it's definitely a great conversation to have. Um, I'm not an expert on kosher. You know, I do things, like I said, my way. But 
where I come from. And in my kosher world, kosher really just means following a set of dietary laws. So there are things that I can eat and there are things that I can't eat, but it's not necessarily a cooking style. It's really similar to gluten-free or vegan using certain ingredients that you can and cannot use. Okay. So break that down for our listeners. And you know they range from the most knowledgeable to the most ignorant. What does kosher mean for you? So kosher for me is following a set of biblical guidelines that addresses certain ingredients that I can and cannot eat. For an example, no pork, no shellfish. I don't mix meat ingredients with dairy ingredients. There are so many more ingredients that I can eat than those that I am restricted from eating. But the basis of it would be no pork, no shellfish, not mixing meat and milk. And there are certain times to wait between eating meat and milk. And also there's something that when it comes to wines, there are certain things that make wines kosher or not kosher. So if the kosher police were to come for you and say, oh, she's not kosher enough. They always do. Would they be saying you don't check the heksher on your ingredients to make sure they had kosher suit? Like salt is kosher, but for someone very strict, they would want the particular brand of salt to have certain supervision. Is that where they come for you? That's one part of it. Also, you know, like I always say, I happen to keep kosher the way I keep kosher, but I am not a rabbi by any means. And I do things my way. So, you know, I'll go places and I will eat fish or non-meat foods that are not always certified kosher. That works for me, but that is not, you know, the most kosher way of eating kosher. It's so interesting, all these gradations. And I, I love what you do because you make beautiful food. I mean, I follow you on Instagram. The food you make is beautiful. And it's sort of funny because I'm like, it has this thing where you're like, you wouldn't know it's kosher. And that's a problem, right? Like this idea that people see kosher food as looking a different way or this idea of elevated kosher cuisine is sort of a surprise to some people, though for people who do it, it's not a surprise at all. I mean, do you feel like you're working against notions and stereotypes even among ignorant Jews like me? I mean, I do. I, I had a couple, of, this is how this all started with like about 10 years ago, I had my neighbors over for dinner and he's Jewish American. She's Italian, grew up around Jews. And they knew that I was kosher and I invited them down for a Shabbat dinner and they were sitting and they were eating. And at one point, my friend, Peter, her husband looked up and said to me, how is this kosher food? <laughs> and I was like, you mean, cause it's good. And he was like, it's so delicious. How can it be kosher? And like, where's the matzo balls? And so I think that people have to understand that there is a very big difference between Jewish style cuisine and kosher food. In fact, there's stuff that's certified kosher that isn't even remotely Jewish in flavor palette, right? I mean, you can be eating classical Italian food or classical Indian food that's 100% kosher. Right, exactly. Like, for me, what I wanted to do when I started writing cookbooks was I wanted to redefine this idea of kosher. And I wanted to write cookbooks that had delicious, simple, seasonal recipes that happened to be kosher, not the other way around. And it's funny when you say, where are the matzo balls? You're, you know, you have Moroccan heritage. You're right. from Canada. Like this idea, we're actually talking about a very specific, almost like the sort of Ashkenazi Americanized food that we imagine, which is almost like stereotypical in its own way, right? So will you tell us about some of the dishes in the modern table, kosher recipes for everyday gatherings. Thank you. So yes, um, like you said, my mom is from Morocco. I grew up in Montreal. I spent summers in Israel. Um, and I've been lucky to travel to many wonderful places. And even within New York City, meet wonderful people from different cultures. And like 
whenever I meet somebody new, I always want to talk to them about what they grew up eating, what's the food of their culture. I think I learned so much by learning that about people. And so in this book, it's all really seasonal, fresh recipes, lots of delicious salads made with seasonal ingredients, quick, easy weeknight dinner recipes, chicken, fish, lamb. There are tons of um, really nice, fresh, raw fish recipes, salmon crudo and tuna tartars. These are recipes that we can make just using really, really high quality ingredients that are completely kosher. And so I've always cooked looking at not kosher cookbooks, cookbooks that are not labeled kosher. And I would take inspiration from that. And I wondered, you know, why did the kosher cookbooks look so different and feel so different? And I wanted to create a book that had these really modern recipes in them that happened to be kosher. The trafe things that you avoid, have you eaten them? Have you had shellfish? Never. I've cooked them though. No, never. So um, I went to culinary school. I said to them when I signed up, I was like, look, I'll cook everything, but I'm not eating everything. I'm only going to eat what I could eat. And they were like, no problem. And like chuckling behind my back, like, okay, she's crazy. And it's funny because my teachers couldn't believe it. My food was always seasoned better than anybody else's, even though I was tasting it. (laughs) Um, I cooked lobster. Did you work from smell? I worked from smell. Yes. So, okay. So part two, because I, I really am dying to know, our co-host Liel has moved in a kosher direction over mm-hmm. the past couple of years. And so, you know, giving up bacon is always very hard for people. Um, mm-hmm. So to pick that one example, given that you know the smell, but not the flavor, is one of the things you're trying to do to give people good substitutes for certain things that they're not allowed to have if they keep kosher? Are you trying to help people find that shrimp substitute, that bacon? Sub- no, no, it's actually the opposite. I find that the substitutes are never going to be as good as the real thing. But like you were talking before about ingredients that are kosher certified, you can find like mock crab sticks, surimi. Right. It's fully kosher certified. That, you know, it's close, but, but it's like, not- what's the a, point? Right, right, what's the point? So I look at it the opposite. There's so much good that we could work with that I don't need to seek out the imitations. It's so interesting because, Mark, you're a vegetarian. And I always yep. wonder this of vegetarians. There are the people who are trying to like replicate, I mean, for both of you, right? The hamburger, the, the bacon cheeseburger, like these things and saying yeah. like, oh, if you just use this different cheese or this impossible burger, like there are ways in which you either try to replicate those meals in your own way or, or do what, Kim, what you're doing and saying like, those are the guardrails, right? Like those are outside the lines of what we're going to eat and we're fine. Mark, where do you stand? Oh, I mean, I see nothing wrong with with the imitation. It's interesting. My kids and wife, they're really not interested in fake hamburger. Like my kids having grown up vegetarian, the idea of cow meat isn't appealing to them. So mm-hmm. they're not seeking it. Whereas I have a, a long and illustrious history of, you know, Big Macs and Shake Shack and th- that I'm trying to always like, get me close, please, right. you know. Well, bring- like, is it the Portobello burger? Because I'm always oh, just like, that can't well, be it. That can't so be inter- the answer. Right. I mean, I suppose that deep down <laughs> in the question is the fact that sometimes substitutes are so terrible. I mean, the, the idea that mushrooms are some substitute for beef is just, is offensive to mushrooms and beef. You get, you get served so many Portobello mushrooms when people hear you're a vegetarian. Correct. That you you almost want to go back. You want to go slaughter a cow yourself. So can you say a little bit about the culinary scene that you're working on here? I mean, you live in New York. You're a a graduate of of culinary school. You're writing cookbooks. Is there a robust community of serious kosher cookbook writers and chefs who are doing really high-end work that you're proud to be part of? Are you guys on various group chats? Like, what's what's the scene? So I would say that in the last 10 years, the kosher scene has totally evolved and it's come a long way. And 
people are trying new things. They are testing out new flavor profiles. And yes, there is a big, big scene out there. There's a big group, particularly many women who are really trying, you know, part of this movement, what I like to call like redefining kosher. They're out there on social media, on Instagram. There's a lot of great cookbooks out there. They are blogging. Um, I think it's great. My own personal issue is where I fit in because I don't fit the part. Like I said, I'm not strictly observant and totally religious and I'm quite open-minded. And so I think that within this kosher world, there are all different types of women. And I, like I sometimes joke around or half joke around and be like, I don't even know if there's a place for me or there isn't a place for me here because when it comes to kosher and I talk about the kosher police that like, there really is people who would be like, well, she's not going to be our kosher guidance, you know, or even within selling kosher cookbooks, there's lots of stores that don't want to sell a book that has like a woman pictured in it. We're talking about like Judaica stores that wouldn't want to feature a cookbook with a woman who's not covered or whose face is in it. It's a totally different world than one that I'm part of. Wait, it's so crazy because you're dealing with Jews who would be like, I'm never going to eat kosher. That kosher is not cool. And then you're also dealing with people who are like, this isn't kosher enough. Right. So you've actually tried to stake out territory. It's basically, we're all just, what, what are we doing? We need to just have a meal together, right? That's what I'm saying. So actually, it's funny that a couple of years ago, I started hosting these like potluck dinners where I would invite all these women and everybody would bring something and we would sit around and get to know each other and learn from one another. And really like the point was, we may be different. We may come from different worlds, different levels of observance, but really there is a seat and there's enough room for everyone at the table. Can we get you a TV show, please? <laughs> Who's going to watch? That happening? My mother? Is that in the works? <laughs> no. We'll watch. You'll watch. We'll watch. We'll, we'll totally watch. <laughs> Thank you. What are some of the questions you get like from, from non-Jewish audiences, from Jewish audiences who aren't kosher? Like, Are there some misconceptions you feel like you're working against besides the fact that kosher food can be delicious, which I'm sure people listening are saying, of course it can be. Right. So that's one thing. Or like some people think that there are specific types of foods that must be served Jewish holidays or on Shabbats when really you can serve anything you want to serve. There isn't like a menu that you have to follow. Or I talk to a lot of people about entertaining it because one of my favorite things to do is really gather people around the table. And that's really what this book, The Modern Table, is all about. It's about how to invite people to sit around your table and enjoy a beautiful, delicious meal, which is my favorite thing to do. But what I've learned over teaching cooking classes over the years, I've come across so many amazing people who are successful, run businesses, doctors, artists, just incredible people who are so threatened by this idea of hosting. And what I've tried to teach over the years through my cooking classes is keep it as simple as possible. And you can have the most beautiful Shabbat dinner or Rosh Hashanah dinner or Passover Seder by keeping the recipes simple and straightforward. And it could be those same recipes that you cook during the week. It's so funny. I have met people who have thought that chicken on Friday nights is a halachic principle. Right. You know, that actually like in Torah, you can't serve pizza on Friday nights. Like, of course you can serve right. pizza. You can serve anything right. on Friday night. Uh -huh. So what's your favorite Shabbat dinner to serve for people? If you have people coming over, are you going to have them over for lunch on Saturday? Like, what's your go-to? I love doing Friday night. I always follow less is more. So less option, more quantity. So I would love to do like a beautiful crispy rice with rib steak sliced and beautiful big salad and then just a great dessert, lots of wine, simple. 
And so what's that dessert going to be? Because you've served meat. And so as we've said, it won't be a dairy dessert. Right. So something as simple as like frozen berries with shaved dark chocolate soaked in red wine or a beautiful olive oil chiffon cake. That's just a no fail, easy recipe, something I make every week or a delicious, chewy, nutty chocolate chip cookie that doesn't even use oil or butter. There's so much available out there. You know, we know more now about healthy, good eating. So we're smarter. We know more. And there's so much more available to us. And it doesn't need to be a million steps for a dessert and using margarine. Like that's a thing of the past already. Just cut up a beautiful watermelon and crumble up some fresh mint leaves over the top of it. And you have a beautiful dessert. I love that you didn't throw in the feta. I really hate the watermelon feta <laughs> well, thing. It's, just, well, it's you like, can serve the feta after the chicken on I Friday know, night. Right, after the chicken. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. The book is The Modern Table. The person is Kim Kushner. The website is kimkushner.com. And we're so happy you've been our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov to our pal, listener, and former guest, Gabrielle Savitt. According to Instagram, he's joining the team at St. Louis radio station Classic 107.3 as a morning host, and he's also going to be podcasting there. I love hearing him on Unorthodox, and I'm excited to figure out how to tune into St. Louis radio to listen. I've always wanted to stream St. Louis-based classical music in the morning, and now we can do it and hear Gavi? It's it's truly great. Big mazel tov to him. Leah Leibowitz, do you have a mazel tov? WNBC, <laughs> I have a mazel tov to the one, the only, the weird Al of the chosen people, Lenny Solomon of Schlockrock, the house band of our other podcast, Hebrew School, who this week welcomes a grandson, a son to his beloved daughter, Mazel tov. And I have lots of Mazel tovs coming out of the New Haven Jewish community. Shai Hurwitz became a man a couple weeks ago. He's uh, doing shots right now and using his fountain pen and smoking cigarettes, all the manly things that a post-bar mitzvah boy does. Uh, Dan and Julie Leveter had a baby. Annie Norman Schiff and David Schiff had a baby. There are people becoming men and women and adults. There are children being born. It seems like the sun is going to rise again on New Year 5783. Lots of good times. Mazel tov to all of you. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Star Fred Benader, Daron Rusque, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can give us lots of food. No family hold back here. Donate to our fundraiser at tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. That's tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme is by Steve Bart. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Tamar Molino at Temple Beth Shalom in Spokane, Washington. And we come to you from Tablet Studios and also from my remote studio where Ryan McAvoy is engineering me here in New Haven. Get your tweed out for fall, sniff that pumpkin air, and we'll see you next week. Shalom, friends. Oh no, my my glasses broke. Oh. Mark, um, Mark, so you're no longer cool. No, it's it's okay. They're fixable. You're you're uh, out of the band, dude. <laughs>